Tiara. And I'm Jack. And we are your hosts. Thanks so much for joining us on our now second episode of the podcast today. If you are a returning listener, thank you so much for tuning back in. And if you're a new listener, welcome. In that case, if you're a new listener, we highly recommend that you actually go back to our first introductory episode, where Jack and I give you a bit of background on who we are and why we started this podcast. And we'd also just like to give a huge thank you to everyone who showed a lot of support on the initial release of our very first podcast. Uh, You guys are just phenomenal. Thank you so much. We received so much positive feedback. And thanks to everyone who, you know, took a screenshot, posted on their Instagram, told their friends about it. Jack and I were just so overwhelmed with the response and thank you so much. So I guess now we're going to give you a bit of a wrap up of what we've been up to for the past week before we get into a few questions that you guys have asked us to answer. So yeah, Tiara and I have actually just come back from a body composition course, also known as an ISAP course. And basically we learned to take something called a skin fold using skin fold calipers. So taking skin folds is definitely a very valuable skill to have. And there's certainly a science and a skill behind it to accurately take repeated measures and to have accurate results, you need to do it in a very, very specific way that is taught by a qualified instructor. So you might see like some of your personal trainers who are holding, they look a bit like tweezers, like big tweezers or big, uh, but you might see the typical way of doing it is um, by pulling skin away from the body and measuring the thickness of that in millimeters. And the problem is, is that people who aren't qualified in doing it, they don't know the correct technique of something called landmarking, which is where you know exactly which part of skin on the limb or like the torso or the back. And in order to properly landmark, you need to have a good understanding of anatomy and physiology because there's very specific parts of your tuberosities and um, specific parts on your bones and also on certain parts of your muscles as well that you need to mark to consistently take those skin folds in the exact same position over time to accurately monitor change. So you might be wondering why skin folds are useful to take. Basically, the larger the skin fold, the higher the percentage of body fat. So people with um, thinner skin or thinner skin folds will typically be leaner. And especially in physique sports, which we're both interested in, uh, it would be very, it's very important to measure skin folds over a period of time. So take this scenario, for example, if you're in an off season and you're wanting to put on muscle, this, this can apply to any athlete, of course. But if your weight is going up and your skin folds are staying about the same, we can confidently say that you're increasing muscle mass without putting on an excessive amount of fat mass. Yes, exactly. And so like Jack alluded to, if you're in a contest prep, especially near probably the last 10 to 15 weeks, you'd probably want to be taking skin folds on a weekly basis, always having them taken by the exact same person so that the measures are consistent and take your skin folds so that you could see if you require changes to your training and dietary plan. However, if it's working, you're still dropping millimeters off your skin folds, then perhaps you don't need to make any changes to your diet. It's indicative that you're still in a calorie deficit and you're good to go. However, if your skin folds do stall um, and you're on the same amount of calories and you still need to drop more body fat, then that might be an indication you need to further decrease your calories to go into a greater deficit. 
So I'm sure some of you are wondering or have heard about DEXA scans and other body composition machines or techniques such as underwater weighing, bod pods, um, electrical impedance, which is your in-body scanner, and how they are different or how they compare to skin folds. The benefit of skin folds is that they um, your skin thickness doesn't really change too much throughout the day. Yeah, so um, it's not going to be influenced by whether you know, you've had a big meal that day or if you've drunk a bit of water that day or even if you've trained. There, there are considerations to if you train because, for example, you do take a skin fold on the bicep and if you trained arms th that day and you take skin folds immediately after and you have a huge bicep pump, that's probably going to influence the um, millimeters that you measure on your skin fold. But compared to the other methods, um, skin folds are very reliable over time. If they're taken by the same measure over time, then, and that's taken on a weekly basis over time, and this person is qualified to take skin folds and they're doing it accurately, you should be able to see a general trend and see changes in body composition. Now, compared to Dexer, how would you compare skin folds to Dexer? What would you say are the positives? What would you say are the negatives to each one? So the problem with testing such as the DEXA is that they're very influenced by external factors, um, some which are in our control, some which aren't. So say if you, optimally you want to go into a DEXA fasted without having drunk anything, so early, early in the morning. Say if you go later during the day, once, once you're very hydrated and you've eaten a lot of food, you'll actually put on lots of lean body mass because as we know, the majority of your, like, your muscles have a very high component of water. And that holds true for a lot, of, a lot of the other tests, such as in-body scan and um, bod pods, etc. Yeah, so a lot of these different measures, guys, can highly be influenced by hydration status, where if you, whether you've eaten food and time of day. Now, we're not saying that these are wrong or like you shouldn't take um, any of these measures because, you know, they all have their benefits. But what we are saying is that you want to be in control of your environment and the external factors and keep them as consistent as possible whenever you get a scan. So guys, if you're using a body composition test such as DEXA, InBody, or BodPod, underwater weighing, electromyography, you really want to um, have the same conditions each time. So same time of day, preferably no food or drink using the same equipment, the same tester as well. And that holds true for skin folds as well. So to be, even though skin folds are less impacted by external factors, have, there's no, no harm in having the same tester, same time of day, same time after training, etc. Just the benefits of each one. So for example, Dexter scans are definitely gold standard for measuring bone mineral density. However, skin folds are probably by, by a qualified anthropometrist are gold standard for measuring changes in skin fold thickness over time. And also we really wanna highlight that you don't necessarily take skin folds to calculate someone's body fat percentage. You'll hear a lot of physique competitors say, you know, I got down to 3% body fat or something ridiculous. You, you just don't take them to calculate a body fat percentage. You simply take them to monitor changes in proportions of body fat on that person's body to see if their total body fat is reducing. Oh, and not to toot our own horns or anything, but Jack and I on our final exam did get full marks, so we got 20 out of 20, which we were pretty proud of. Um, but I guess after you practice the exact same skill, pinching each other for three days straight, 
I guess you kind of get the hang of it. <laughs> yeah, just go into a little bit more um, depth about our weeks. Been pretty monotonous for me, I guess, because um, I haven't been able to train. Today, we're, we're recording this on Wednesday, but it's been exactly three weeks since I stopped training. So, yeah, by far the longest amount of time I haven't trained for since I started training properly. I have to ask, do you find that, that it's getting easier mentally as the days keep going on or is it getting harder? Like, are you just getting used to it or are you just getting more and more upset or frustrated? I'd say there's a mixture. I'm, I think training itself, I'm, I'm not, like, I feel okay with not training itself. Like, I do miss the physical exertion and that side of things, but I, it's definitely more the frustration and it's been about three weeks now, but I, there hasn't been as much of an improvement as I would like, but... I'm probably the doctor that I've been speaking to has said about four to six weeks. So I'm probably going to leave it and be safe and go for the full six weeks and reassess from there. But, you know, and on a positive note for your future athletes, now that you've gone through this injury, you can really relate to them because it's kind of inevitable that in a bodybuilder's career, they are going to go through some sort of injury. You know, all the most famous and competitive bodybuilders out there have had something happen to them where they've had to take time off but I think it holds true when they say you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and in the case of injuries I think you probably do learn a a lot about yourself I'd imagine. Yeah I can confidently say that probably the the biggest take-home message I can get from this is whenever whenever someone who loves training gets injured they just want to go back to training straight away and definitely reassess and make sure it's safe to go back to training and sometimes taking time off straight away can do a lot more can be a lot more beneficial than trying to train even lightly which is kind of what happened for me but yeah yeah so this past week apart from the anthropometry course that ran over like four days um essentially i've just been working and i've been training myself but yeah i had to squish a lot of my pt clients into only a few days which was pretty full-on I had quite a few big days there. But yeah, uh, we're on holidays right now, so there actually is quite a lot of time to train, train clients, work, and have some downtime too, which is a really nice change compared to this past crazy year we've had of our entire master's program. So it is good to, even though life is still a bit busy, still have time to chill out, especially at night. It's good. For sure. Yeah, so I guess now, guys, we're going to get into the questions that you asked us. We put up a poll on our Instagram, and thank you so much for the people who sent in their questions. We received quite a few, so we're not sure if we can get through all of them today, depending on how much depth we go into, but we will certainly try our best. So, Jack, if you want to read out the first one. So the first one is what aspect of contest prep did you find the most challenging? And that was addressed to both of us. Yeah, and who asked that? That was Lawrence Greve. So thanks, Lawrence, for... Ah, general muscle. General muscle. So I'll let you start off, Tiara. Oh, man. Okay, so the hardest part of prep or the most challenging part of prep? Um, The most challenging part of prep for me was probably Tuesday night leg sessions. And that's just because the days or the probably the two days leading up to those sessions were just very um, mentally draining and physically draining and I was very tired. <laughs> so to give you guys um, an idea, on Monday mornings I'd wake up quite early, probably around 5 30, 
and I would um, have something to eat and then I would go straight to the gym and I'd usually train upper body that morning and then I'd have a quick meal and then I would be in class that day from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. And then at 4 p.m. I would go straight to the gym and I had a seven hour shift from 4 p.m. until 11.15 p.m. at night. So I work at the University of Queensland Fitness Center and I'm one of the, the gym staff there. So during my shifts, I'm doing a lot of consults with the members. So writing people fitness programs, showing them how to do exercises. I also do nutrition consults with the members there. So that was a long shift and a very long day around 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. at night. And then I'd walk home and I'd just crash and fall asleep. And I had to be up the next morning around 5 a.m. And then that morning I would have to catch the bus to the hospital where I would be on um, my hospital clinical placement all day. And that usually started around 7.30 or 8 and didn't end until around 4.30 in the afternoon. And that was very mentally draining for me because I was just very, very unhappy there. And I, I really, unfortunately, I, I really didn't un enjoy the clinical aspect of my dietetics master's degree. Just clinical dietetics really isn't where I'm meant to be. Um, but I pushed through and yeah, just the mixture of being a little bit sleep deprived. I was in an energy deficit. I was pretty tired. I was unhappy. And then I had to hop back on the bus around 4.30 or 5, catch the bus back to UQ, which could take 45 minutes to an hour because it was quite a lot of traffic at that time. And then go to the gym and do a leg session on Tuesday night. And <laughs> that took a lot of mental strength. Thankfully, I had some pre-workout, which I had been looking forward to all day. So I had a bit of a caffeine hit, but yeah, I'm pushing through trying to do a leg session um, after all of that was probably the most challenging part of prep for me. And then, you know, I'd go home, take a shower, have a meal, and the next morning wake up and do the same thing all again. So that was definitely the hardest part of prep for me. But, you know, I put myself in that situation because I wanted to make it all happen. I wanted to be in prep. I also wanted to work. I also wanted to study. So I can't necessarily complain because I essentially did that to myself, but I can't lie and say that it wasn't hard. All right, so Jack, sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded answer, but it was tough. <laughs> yeah, so my hardest part of prep was probably is pretty similar to Tiara, and is probably what a lot of people find the most difficult as well. Fortunately for me, my food was, compared to other competitors, my food was pretty high throughout prep, even towards the end. I would have four low days um, followed by three high days, and on the low days, I would have my training would be volume emphasized, like less intensity, less like having to psych yourself up for those big lifts like squat and deadlift and like barbell bench press. But the following three days um, were my high days, and that's where my training got really hard. And yeah, even though I had that extra food, especially towards the end where your body fat's just so low. It's just really hard to suck yourself up for, the, for those lifts and especially the intensity. So the amount of weight I was lifting combined with the amount of volume I was doing just got um, really tough for me. And I don't know if you remember, Tierra, but I, especially on the leg days, I was doing like six sets of squats followed by six sets of RDLs and then six sets of leg press and then all my other accessory exercises after that. So It was crazy. Jack was just like this 
sweaty zombie walking around the gym, even though he was full of carbs. That's something about prep guys, even on your high carb days, you still feel like crap. <laughs> and yeah, I was, I was usually on my leg days. I think I would be there for like three hours or so. Yeah. So. so you reckon that was the hardest part, just those big leg sessions. Yeah. Yeah. Man. All right. So we'll move on to the, <laughs> the next question. And that is, is a cheat meal useful to lose fat for someone who is eating in a deficit? So I interpret this as, is a cheat meal useful for someone who's in a diet phase and will it like result in any benefits? Like say increased body fat loss, increased um, anabolic hormones or something like that. So just to start this off, I guess, is saying there's a massive difference between a cheat meal and like a programmed or organized refeed meal or time period or certain macros. Um, and the problem with cheat meals is that someone often goes overboard and eats too much because the, the main formula for weight loss is an energy deficit. You can't really beat that. I just want to ask, what the hell are you cheating on? Like, why are you, you're, the only person you're cheating is yourself. The real only benefit of a cheat meal would be any sort of psychological benefit, you know? You get a little bit of a break from your diet, but I think it can be a very slippery slope. So for example, if you're in a deficit all week and the only thing you're looking forward to that entire week is just your cheat meal, you know, on Sunday where you get to binge and pig out, that is like so basically a, just ruining your whole week of progress. So. Yeah, but it's also it's also a huge flashing red light that whatever sort of diet you're following is not sustainable, and clearly you don't enjoy it. So everyone has a huge energy budget during the day, guys. Like honestly, most girls their maintenance calories around two thousand. Guys, Jesus, what are your maintenance calories? Like, yeah, probably about 3,000 or something. Yeah, pretty high. So I think in any sort of diet, you should be able to incorporate the foods that you enjoy in moderation. And you don't have to eat 2,000 calories worth of cake. You know, you can have 300 calories worth of cake if you want. You can always fit it into your daily consumption. And that's going to make your diet a lot more sustainable long term. Also, just going back to this. So... I just want to say no, um, a cheat meal is not going to help you lose fat if you are in a deficit all week. It's not going to do anything magical to your metabolism. It's not going to spike it. It's not going to do anything acutely to your hormones. But we do want to say that uh, having lower calorie days and higher calorie days and periods of eating in a energy maintenance or slight surplus can have benefits and there's that's an area of research that Tiara and I are very interested in and we're keeping a close eye on certain scientists such as Jackson Pios, who we hope to get on the show one day. But basically, say for me what I did in my prep, I did four low days and three high days. So I could really force the weight loss on the low days and have maintenance calories on those high days to increase my training performance. Yeah, but if you looked at his calories across the entire week, if you wanted to, you could just spread those out to be even across all seven days. It really depends on what type of approach you wanna take, but essentially the main thing that is going to lead to weight loss or b loss of body fat is an energy deficit. And a cheat meal is very unlikely to keep you in an energy deficit especially um, depending on some of the cheat meals we see on social media and YouTube. Um, some people can go really wild with it. 
If you guys have any other questions about our responses, please just DM us on Instagram or yeah, just send us a direct message. Yeah, we'll head on to question three now, which is best diet to cut fat after bulking. Okay, so I guess, so the diet best to cut fat after bulking. So again, this is kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. In order to lose fat, you need to be in an energy deficit. Now, especially after you bulk, some people do these things called mini cuts. So Jack's even done one of these before. It is a pretty short period, maybe four to six weeks of a pretty aggressive diet. So you might put yourself in what, like a thousand calorie deficit per day? Anything you probably want to, depending on where you end up in your bulking, so how much body fat you store, you want to, I'm just ballparking here, but maybe around a kilo per week, anywhere between four and eight weeks or however much you need to lose. It's very individualized. But say, take me for example, I was around 90 kilos. I was probably around a 20% body fat and I lost about six kilos in six weeks, six to eight weeks which was maybe even a little bit slow, but basically just um, reduces your body fat in a short amount of period. And because you are, because it is such a short period and because you aren't prolonging it, you are unlikely to lose too much muscle and strength in that time. Yeah, so you're in a pretty prime condition to lose just body fat, but they kind of say get in and get out. Just get in there, do what you need to do, just drop your calories, suck it up, and then get out and go back into maintenance and then start bulking again. I guess what we definitely want to highlight as well is that maybe the sort of impression I got from this question is that you don't want to say bulk for a month and then you're like, oh shit, I've, I'm like 20% body fat now and it's only been one month. You really want to maximize the most amount of time you can stay in that energy surplus for and milk out as much muscle gain as you can. And then optimally, you might not even need a mini cut they just i guess they use this sort of like a last resort if you do see your higher body fat levels affecting you so you might have reduced sleep reduced recovery um you might get out of breath after like eight squats or something like that which definitely started having happening to me when i got heavier so yeah but yeah i guess just all summing up if you're looking for the best diet after bulk You need to be in an energy deficit anywhere between 500 to 1,000 calories per day below your maintenance levels or whatever you're burning. You want to keep protein intake high so that you do retain your muscle mass around 2.5 grams per kilogram, um, spreading that between four to five meals across the day. And so that you maintain satiated, you know, fill up on lots of fibrous foods and lots of fruits and vegetables, things that are voluminous but provide fewer calories and try to get the majority of your calories from carbohydrates and protein. And you can usually limit fat to around one gram per kilogram or so. All right, so moving on to the next question. What does it say? It says, uh, what are your guys' thoughts on a vegan diet? Okay, so a vegan diet. So I think that a vegan diet can definitely be a very healthy way to eat. The wonderful thing about a vegan diet is that it promotes more plant-based eating, which I think that we can all agree that if everyone on this earth just ate more fruits and vegetables, more plants, more whole grains, more legumes, I think that we would all be in much better health. However, when it does come to a vegan diet, because you aren't eating any animal-based products, there are definitely some nutrients that you need to watch out for and pay very close attention to to make sure that you're meeting your requirements. 
So one of these would certainly be protein. Others include vitamin B12, calcium, iron, zinc. Sounds uh, up the major ones. Yeah, also omega-3 fatty acids as well from fish. So I guess we can start off with protein. So protein can certainly be acquired from plants. However, you really want to be making sure that you're obtaining all of your essential amino acids. So what's called a complete protein is made up of all 20 amino acids. And nine of these are essential, meaning that our body cannot synthesize them and that we need to acquire them from the diet. Now, unfortunately, most plant foods do not contain all nine essential amino acids, at least not in the amount um, required for us. So what you actually need to do to get all nine essential amino acids is you need to combine different types of plant protein. So Jack, what would be some examples there? So you could combine um, whole grains with legumes. So for example, baked beans on toast is a pretty common one. Yeah, exactly. So um, just combining different grains, they don't always actually have to be within the same meal, just across the entire day, making sure that you're getting different sources of plant proteins. So great sources of plants that are high in protein include all of your lentils, your beans, your chickpeas, nuts have a bit of protein as well, your whole grains too, and also things such as tofu and your soy products. What else has some protein in it? Well, actually, soy is the only source of plant protein that has a complete essential amino acid profile in it. Yeah, so if you are consuming lots of tofu or soy milk, then you actually will be getting those essential amino acids. All right, and also paying attention to one very particular amino acid, which is called leucine. So leucine is the main essential amino acid involved in stimulating muscle protein synthesis. And you want to be consuming anywhere between three and five grams of leucine per meal in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And unfortunately, leucine is usually quite low in most plant-based products. However, it is very high in animal-based products. However, if you do combine a bunch of different plant-based proteins, you usually can hit your leucine threshold or you could consider supplementing with a leucine supplement if that is necessary. It highly depends on your goals. All right, so the other nutrients, for example, we could cover calcium. Calcium in an omnivore diet is mainly consumed through dairy products, so all of your cheese, your milks, your yogurts. However, in a vegan diet, you're definitely not consuming these. If you are consuming plant-based milk, such as almond milk or soy milk, you really want to make sure that these are fortified with calcium. So if you look on the back of the nutrient information panel, you want to make sure that each serving, which should be around a cup, has 250 to 300 milligrams of calcium in there. So the next worthwhile nutrient in mentioning is iron. And as many of you probably know, if you're an omnivore, you mainly get it from meat sources such as red meat, seafood as well. However, if you're, you're a vegan, you have to resort to other means. So iron can be split up into two forms. It's heme and non-heme form. It's heme form is a lot more bioavailable, so you can absorb it a lot more easily. And the non-heme form is not as bioavailable. And just to clarify, you get heme iron from your animal-based products and non-heme iron from your plant products. So your non-heme iron can be more easily absorbed by actually consuming it with a vitamin C source. So for example, a common non-heme source of iron is spinach and eating that with a vitamin C source, so say a glass of orange juice or preferably an actual orange, 
can enhance the absorption. Mm, or even throwing some tomatoes on your salad or anything, guys. And another very important nutrient to pay attention to would be vitamin B12. So vitamin B12, again, can only be acquired from an omnivore diet because it only comes from animal-based products. And vitamin B12 is an absolute essential nutrient. We would die without it. It's very important in DNA repair. And therefore, since you can only get this vitamin from animal-based products, most vegans do have to resort to supplementing vitamin B12. So I guess the last one that we'll mention is omega-3, which is an essential fatty acid. And if you're an omnivore, as many of you know, you get this from fish oils, so from fatty pieces of fish or other seafood, such as like tuna steaks or sardines or kippers. And if you're a vegan, probably the best sources of this is flax meal or chia seeds. Walnuts have a bit of omega-3s as well. However, they're in a different form, so they're called ALA, and this is not as readily bioavailable in our body. However, from animal-based products, you get a form of omega-3 called EPA and DHA. Therefore, as a vegan, if you aren't consuming a bunch of chia seeds, flax meal, walnuts, you can consider supplementing with omega-3, because omega-3 is actually made from algae, and that's where fish obtain it from in their diet. So you can get algae oil and in a supplemental form. So guys, we recognize that the vegan diet is very broad and there are a lot of health considerations to take into account. You can certainly do it right and you could probably do it very wrong as well. Just do your research. I'd highly recommend if you are considering this diet as a lifestyle choice, do consult a nutrition professional so that you make sure you're not deficient in any nutrients. However, it is wonderful that you are eating a bunch of plants and also it's probably very, very sustainable for the environment. So we'll move on to the next question, which is what is the best type of diet for someone with a very fast metabolism? Okay, so the way that I interpret this question is what's the best way to eat for someone who is trying to maintain their weight or gain weight. So I know that Jack definitely went through this when his calories got up to, was it like 6,000? Yeah, I've got around yeah. there, yeah. Yeah, so can you tell some them what strategies you use to keep your calorie intake high without feeling too full? So the best way that, I actually learned from my mistakes quite a lot. So I probably had a very, very high fat intake at the peak of my bulk or off season. And that probably reflected slightly in my body composition. So because when you eat fat and you don't burn off that fat or don't utilize that fat, it will just be stored as fat. Whereas when you eat carbohydrates, they have the potential to be, well, they are stored as glycogen and glycogen can then be used as an energy source. It's only when that glycogen isn't used that it gets stored as fat. The only problem with eating an abundance of carbohydrates is that it isn't as energy dense as fat and it might keep you more full or too full. So what I would recommend if you can, try and go for a higher carbohydrate approach to avoid gaining too much fat. But seeing as if you're having difficulty with weight gain, then it might just be easier to go for a higher fat and a higher carbohydrate approach. Essentially, you wanna start eating more energy dense foods that don't have too much volume. So in this case, guys, peanut butter is really gonna become your best friend. Just nuts in general, I'm going for higher fat dairy, so you can have more full fat yogurts, full cream milk, eat more cheese. You know, these are still very nutritious foods that still provide you with lots of protein and lots of, lots of calcium and other nutrients as well. And they're not too filling. 
also you can put more olive oil on your salad. So that is certainly going down the higher fat, higher energy density route. However, Jack, what are some ways that you ate and put more carbohydrates into your diet without having too much volume? So what I used to do is I made a lot of smoothies. Uh, sometimes even in exam block when I was, wasn't feeling very hungry at all, I actually did like two or three smoothies a day. So what would be in a smoothie? So I would add usually a piece of fruit, so say a banana or berries, uh, another carbohydrate source such as oats. If you're looking for a carb source which isn't quite as filling or dense, then maybe something like multidextrin, or you could even try like wheat bix or something similar like that, or even like a cereal. And other than that, I put in this protein powder, of course, for protein. Um, you can add peanut butter for even more calories, honey, yogurt. Um, the list is endless, but you can definitely, I made like a probably a 1500 calorie shake, which was around six to 700 mil. So you literally down that in like a couple of minutes. So, mm. And I guess other lower volume uh, forms of carbohydrates would be rice. Rice is awesome. You don't have to add much water and you can get quite a lot of carbohydrates from a smaller serving of rice. You can make mashed potatoes, guys. So lots of potatoes with, you know, some full cream milk and some olive oil in there. That's pretty energy dense and carbohydrate dense too. When you're making things like oatmeal, just add less water, just make them more thick. They'll probably be even more delicious, but you could easily eat like 200 grams, 300 grams of oats. Yeah. Yeah. Or what about your breakfast you make right now? Isn't that like 1,500 calories? Yeah, it's sort of like an oatmeal birch muesli thing. So I, the night before, I just add apple, oats, milk, yogurt, cinnamon, and you can even add other things to make it more energy dense. So say sultanas, a bit of honey, nuts. Yeah, and it's very easily like 1,500 calories. But And if you're having trouble putting on weight, really take a step back and look at your diet and your dietary pattern as a whole. So are you eating regular meals? Because... I know a lot of people will say, oh, I eat so much. And then you do a dietary recall with them and it turns out they're only eating like one meal a day. And sure, it might be an energy dense meal, but because they're only eating one time during the day, they're still in an energy deficit. Even if they're eating pizza and ice cream, try to eat multiple meals throughout the day. So try to go for four meals and utilize snacks such as big handfuls of nuts or you know energy dense pieces of fruit. You can have a big handful of raisins or some dates. And I guess the gold standard method of ensuring that you're in an energy surplus and gaining weight is just by counting your calories using an app such as MyFitnessPal. And that really just holds you to it and you can't really go wrong doing that. So say experiment starting off with. So let's just say for example, an average male who's struggling to gain weight, I would probably say, around 3000 calories. So try eating that on MyFitnessPal. If you weigh yourself a couple of days later or the next day, or just regularly weigh yourself and you see a downward trend in weight, increase it by say another two to 300 calories and follow that process. Um, in opposite, if you're gaining too much weight, then you can decre decrease your calories slightly. So it's quite an easy method. And once you get the hang of MyFitnessPal, it's very, very straightforward and even after using MyFitnessPal for a month or two, you can even stop using it if you think you have a good enough handle on eating, your eating pattern. Awesome, okay, so next question. So the next question is, cardio or strength training to lose weight? Okay, so I guess this kind of ties back to what we spoke about before, is that in order to lose weight, guys, you need to be in an energy deficit. 
No matter what type of exercise you're doing, if your diet doesn't complement that, you're not going to lose weight. However, in terms of this question, when you are losing weight, you want to retain as much lean muscle mass as possible. And the ways to do that are primarily through resistance training, so lifting weights and eating enough protein to maintain that muscle mass. So what I would recommend is that you predominantly follow a resistance-based program. Depends on your lifestyle, but anywhere between three to six days in the gym per week. Making sure your protein intake is adequate, so around 2.5 grams per kilogram of body weight. Spread that out between four meals during the day. Preferably get those from high biological value sources, so get your protein from animal sources. And try to use cardio as a tool. So Jack, how would you explain using cardio as a tool? So I'll just use cardio as a means to further my energy deficit. And this would obviously depend on the individual. But say if you're on around 2000 calories per day and you don't really want to decrease your calories anymore because you're obviously incredibly hungry, doing a cardio session each day or even once or twice a week will further that energy deficit and continue that weight loss. And that this is assuming that someone doesn't enjoy doing cardio. So of course you can do cardio whenever you want, but. So like Jack and I are both huge advocates of hitting our step count and going for walks during the day. So we both usually aim to hit at least 10,000 steps. It usually goes above that, but just going for walks during the day and keeping up what's called NEAT, which is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So that's anything outside of structured exercise that you're doing throughout the day. So that can be walking between buildings at university, walking around your office, walking to your car. Carrying the shopping. Yeah, going shopping, absolutely anything. Or even fidgeting as well, moving your feet, doing the dishes, anything that moves your body. So you want to keep your neat up and keep, because that's burning calories throughout the day too, guys. It, actually, the majority of your calories do come from neat. Even standing at your desk as well, like just improvising with a standing desk and put like a box underneath your computer and just standing instead of sitting will help as well. So yeah, certainly just keep your resistance training up, keep your protein intake adequate because you want to retain as much muscle mass as you possibly can when you're losing weight because that's, it's going to help you burn more calories at rest too. And I'm guessing that's probably the physique you're aiming for is a leaner, more muscular physique. Because if you do too much cardio and you cut out just all the resistance training, you will lose your muscle mass and I don't think you'll probably achieve your ideal physique goals. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So maybe last question, you think? Yeah. Yeah. Last question, guys. So Jack, which one do you want to do? So we'll do one from Guy. Guy Leggett. Thanks for asking, Guy. Uh, How do you both considering your relationship with food at the moment? Ooh, okay. Well, personally, I think that right now I have the best relationship with food that I've ever had in my life. I do come from a background of a bit of disordered eating, but right now I feel great, guys. I'm not, I'm certainly not in the mindset of where I think any sort of food is better than another. So I'm not in the mentality of good and bad food. I don't restrict any food groups. I really look to food as for what it is. So I look at the macronutrient and the micronutrient composition, and I align that with my goals. My main goal right now is to gain um, lean body mass and improve my performance in the gym. And in order to do that, I follow 
certain certain macronutrients split so right now i'm on around like 370 grams of carbs per day 160 grams of protein and around 60 grams of fat and i don't necessarily exclude anything from my diet but i am very aware of what i am eating and i feel better when i am eating lean protein sources from eggs from chicken from fish lots of dairy. I love whole grains. Oats are probably my favorite food in the world. <laughs> and I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, but I certainly don't see anything wrong. If I was craving a piece of cake or if I was craving a donut, then I could easily fit that into my calories. And it doesn't cause me any anxiety. It definitely used to, but I don't have any anxiety or fear around food anymore, which is fantastic. Cake, when did I last have cake? Uh, it would have been your birthday. Yeah, so, and I had two slices because <laughs> I wanted to try both cakes. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel great with the type of food that I'm eating and the main indicator for me is... Just so you know, guys, that was over a year ago now, so... Hey! <laughs> hey, actually, I eat a cake every day. I eat my protein cake every single day. I call that a cake. It has like over 100 grams of flour in it. Yeah, and probably 40 grams of protein. But... Yeah, well, who cares? <laughs> yeah, guys, actually, I eat a cake every single day. Um, no, but I don't have any anxiety around food anymore. I eat what I like, and the types of food that I do like just happen to be those that are shown in the literature to be very healthy for you and promote lots of longevity and really improve exercise performance. All right, Jack. So yeah, I'm definitely in a very similar situation to Tierra. I can say confidently speaking for both of us that we definitely have had our periods of disordered eating where we haven't had the best relationship with food. And interestingly enough, that wasn't during our most recent preps. We were actually very, like, very fine during that period before we met each other. But we, we actually got a question um, and someone asked for us to go into quite a bit more depth about our relationships with um, food in terms of disordered eating and how we overcame that. And I think we'll definitely leave that for another podcast because it'll probably be quite a, a long discussion. But in terms of my relationship with food now, I'm very healthy. And <laughs> Sorry, Jack's dog is trying to break in. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very good at the moment. In prep, obviously, everyone gets really hungry. I definitely did go through that period of like, all you can think about is your next meal and what you're going to eat after prep. Um, not to say I didn't, I didn't go all out after prep. If anything, I probably restricted a little bit too much, but, um, now just like Tierra, I eat in accordance to my goals, fortunate enough to not really crave any sort of foods. And yeah, Tierra and I just aren't like, an, a lot of people probably think, oh, you're never eating cake or ice cream or anything like that, but we genuinely just don't really crave that sort of food. And especially for me, that's much more correlated with like my body fat level, like because I'm in a full surplus now, even like while I'm not training, I'm still on over 3,500 calories, which is kind of crazy considering I'm like sitting down all day, but that's more than enough to keep me like satiated. And I don't just don't crave anything because I'm not hungry. And honestly, guys, as a bodybuilder, and if performance in the gym is one of your main goals, essentially in life, the structure of your meals really should aim to maximize that performance in the gym. And you are going to feel much better if you don't have 
huge spikes in blood glucose levels because you ate a bunch of donuts right before your training session, you know? Or you ate like a super cheesy pizza or a bunch of ice cream or something that just makes you feel heavy and you know, you couldn't go comfortably and do a squat. I think Jack and I both crave the feeling of feeling good and strong and having sustained energy and good quality sleep and recovering so we can go back to the gym the next day and hit it and do really well. So yeah, our meals are definitely structured around our training because we're training and we're eating with a purpose. All right, so we're about to wrap this up, but just to finish on our final question, one interesting thing that we learned this week. I'll let you start, Tiara. Okay, um, just quickly, one interesting thing I learned this week is starting a podcast is a hell of a lot harder than I actually thought it would be. It's very complicated. <laughs> I thought that it would just be as easy as, you know, you record an episode, um, you might um, you might edit out if you said anything silly, you save it as an mp3, you make an account on iTunes, and you just upload it to the world. But it is so much more complicated than that. I was, <laughs> I was up late at night on all these different websites uh, because you don't, you can't actually upload a podcast straight to iTunes. You have to do it through another server. I was trying to. I eventually ended up doing it through SoundCloud, and I had to find some sort of thing called an RSS, which I found out later from my friend was some coding code. I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm talking about. Somehow I made it through, guys. But if you. <laughs> Starting podcast is, and Google just doesn't have the answers. Jack and I were, we had our episode ready to go, but we were sitting there on our computers and we're like, oh my God, we can't post it. We don't know where the hell to post it. How we even had work? to get our um, icon like a certain size, like a certain, a perfect square. Otherwise, iTunes wouldn't accept the picture. But... Yeah, it was just ridiculous, guys. I'm, maybe this is a little like note to iTunes. Can you just make it a bit easier to pe for people to put podcasts out into the world? Because there's probably a lot of people that have made podcasts and they just gave up because they had no idea how to post it. So anyway, if you guys are actually thinking about starting a podcast and are like suffering from the same issues, feel free to message me because I did figure it out in the end. So on to me, um, pretty easy one for me because we kind of just did a three-day course learning um, body composition analysis, but... Probably that whole, I would sum it up, that whole thing of learning skin folds was a new learning experience for me, especially being able to ask the supervisor there. He was called um, Dr. Gary Slater. He's a very experienced sports dietitian and physique scientist, really. And we basically got to quiz him on all our physique and nutrition-related sport questions. I could go into like another 10 different points about what I learned, but um, I would say, yeah, as a whole, learning to take skin fold measurements and how they'll um, be of use to us in the long run so yeah it should be good and now we can do them on each other which will be um hopefully all right <laughs> we'll need to see what our outcomes are <laughs> all right guys so we're probably gonna wrap it up here thanks again so much for listening to our second episode remember if you enjoyed this please take a screenshot um, post it to your instagram stories you can tag both of us and yeah we will catch you next week thank see you, guys. you.